We did that song uh, today for someone special by her special request. None of you know her, or very few of you perhaps, and it's right that you wouldn't. Uh, she runs our sound week in and week out, and uh, this is the last time she does it. But as one who tried running sound once, I was quickly known to all who were in that event uh, as being incompetent. And one of the marks of Leanne's brilliance is that you rarely know she's there. Uh, so just Leanne, thank you. A few years back, Amy and I were out to dinner on a rare date. And we were about two-thirds of the way through the dinner when we got a phone call. And it was, of course, an emergency phone call, as all calls from the children are. And this emergency came with the sitter's blessing because DirecTV went out. <laughs> we, of course, were instantly concerned. We dropped our forks. We ran out. Uh, now, we finished our meal, but we figured it would be worth getting home. And as we did, I embarked, as I suppose many men might, on getting to the bottom of it. And I... I went through a whole host of hold music, a whole host of number punching to get to the right streamlined uh, operator who would know exactly how to help me. And as I pursued this, what I learned was that the reason DirecTV went out was that our bill wasn't paid. Now this surprised me. Uh, any of you who know Amy know that she's all over this kind of thing, and that would never happen, which is why she does the bills. But I still blamed her, and I went and I said, what's going on? They told me it's you. And uh, she said, no, last month I was doing bills early and then again later, and I paid it twice by accident. Uh, I saw that there was a credit that was bigger than what we owed, so I didn't pay it. So I had to go back through the streamlining, back through the music, back through the operators, and eventually I got to someone and I said, so my wife tells me, uh, still somewhat skeptical, I suppose, my wife tells me that we have a credit. Is that true? Yes, sir. Your records do show a credit. And the credit is greater than the value we owe you? Yes, sir. But you turned off our TV for not paying? Yes, sir. I guess I'm confused. We have a credit. It's bigger. Yes, that's right, sir. Well, why did you turn it off? Well, sir, you never applied the credit. I didn't do what? Well, you have to tell us that you want to apply the credit. I felt like I was a part of a Seinfeld episode. What could be more ridiculous? What else do I have the credit for but to apply the credit to my DirecTV bill? But I guess there is this, uh, this process, so beware. You must apply the credit. We have journeyed to Bethlehem. We've gone about a month. We have enjoyed Christmas carols. We've enjoyed great lessons. We've followed in this journey along with shepherds, along with wise men, to Bethlehem. But the other morning I was lying in bed and I was just thinking, whatever happened to the wise men? What difference did it make in their life that they journeyed to Bethlehem? We get some hint that they were warned in a dream to go home by another way, but what happened when they got home? And I hope it was something marvelous. 
I don't think we know. But it got me asking the question of each of us. We've journeyed to Bethlehem, but what happens to us as we journey beyond Bethlehem? You see, the point of Jesus is never to just come and adore him. The point of coming and adoring him is that something in our heart is touched and would worship him and in worship would be changed by him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. When we look at Jesus, when we come to Bethlehem, we're transformed into his likeness. And yet our ongoing task in life is to become more like him, isn't it? And that's certainly the case of Nicodemus. He came at night a little concerned of what others might think as he came to Jesus, but he left as a great advocate of Christ. It's true of the woman at the well. She was ashamed. She was hiding. She would go at midday. And yet Jesus spoke to her and told her everything she ever did. And she went back to the town and told the people about this unique man. It's true of the man at the gate called Beautiful or the person at the pool where the waters were stirred up. And they just long for a chance to get into the water and perhaps be healed. And yet Jesus healed him directly and he went away changed. It's certainly true of the woman caught in adultery. As Jesus writes in the sand and the men who had accused her walk away and her life is changed by this gentle man full of grace. You think of Mary and Martha and certainly Lazarus who had been dead for three days and Jesus brought him back from the dead. He was changed. And it's certainly true of the disciples. But it wasn't true of everyone, right? Not everyone was willing to come to Bethlehem and journey beyond changed. For Herod, he absolutely wanted nothing to do with change. In fact, he used everything in his power to keep things the same. For the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't want to see change happen. For the rich young ruler, Christ said, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. And he went away sad. Even those who were part of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes says that day many left Christ because his teachings were hard. And even as Christ looked at Peter and said, you're not going to leave too, are you? Peter, of course, said no. To who else shall we turn? We've journeyed to Bethlehem, and now it's time to journey beyond Bethlehem. We can worship and adore and be changed, as is expected, or we could cling to the ways things were and reject change. I want to propose that in light of the new year, in light of the opportunity at a resolution, we consider the words of Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, which create an opportunity for us to have a resolution that Jesus offers us. So you can go ahead. There's Bibles for you all. You can go to Matthew 11. But as you do that, I want to walk you through the book of Matthew to this point. Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 are devoted to a genealogy of Jesus in the Christmas story. Then Jesus continues in his preparation in Matthew 3, 
He is baptized in Matthew 4. He is tempted. And then Jesus lays the framework of his teaching. In Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 8 and in Matthew 9, Jesus starts to demonstrate his power. And there are a number of miracles that he performs. He heals a leprous person. He heals someone with fever. And recall, a fever isn't quite like we have. There is no Tylenol. It could be deadly. He heals a paralytic. He heals a blind man. He heals a mute. There are a number of healings. There are even those who are cured of demon possession. There's even a woman who grabs at his garment and is healed simply by her faith. In all of this, Jesus is demonstrating his power, and in some of it, the crowd is starting to gather bigger and bigger around him. At one point, he has to get in a boat and go closer to his homeland because the crowds are so large. And it's with that that he realizes, as he looks at these large crowds, how sad it is. He looks at the crowd, and he realizes their hurt and their need And he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And his heart goes out to him and he thinks, we need workers. The field is ripe, but the harvest workers are few. So in Matthew 10, he sends out the disciples and he instructs them in how to have the same impact that he's having. He wants them to be changed like him so that they can go do the work of God like Christ is. And he sends them out, and after sending them out, he returns to the work of doing miracles, now in his hometown. As he's doing this, some of John's disciples come to him, and this is Matthew chapter 11. And as he finishes that passage, you start to get a sense of his frustration. You see, John's people are saying, Are you really Jesus? Because the Messiah we thought would look differently and do some different things. You're doing amazing miracles, but are you really him? And if you pick up in verse 18, you sense his disappointment. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Then I, the son of man, come. I'm eating and drinking, and they say I'm a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's like, I can't please people, you know? There's just no pleasing everyone. Some want it one way, some want it the other. But he says this, it's not about the form, it's about what I'm doing. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. And it's in this moment that he starts to then make this comment about a couple cities. He mentions Chorazin. He mentions Bethsaida. He mentions Capernaum. These are places where he's done lots of miracles. Cities that think they are special. That they're religious epicenters. And he says, you know what? You cities are going to be judged because all this great work is happening in your midst and you're missing it. Because it doesn't fit the form you expect. And you know what? There are three other cities. There's Tyre and Sidon. And there's Sodom. These are cities you clearly expect are the epitome of evil, but they will be judged less harshly. Because at the end of the day, what we know holds our heart to the standard of what we've seen. We've journeyed to Bethlehem. We are held to that standard 
of knowing and seeing Jesus. We've seen so much. We're privileged in that way. So Jesus is declaring woe to some cities and saying others won't be judged as harshly. But it's at that time that he then comes towards the end of the chapter and says, God, I thank you. I thank you that you reveal yourself to simple people, not know-it-alls, just ordinary people. I thank you that you allow me to be in relationship with you in such a way that we have this unique and intimate relationship. I thank you that you've invited me to reveal myself to others and allowed me to show others who you are. And it's at that point that he comes to Matthew eleven twenty-eight. This is an invitation for a New Year's resolution. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's perhaps unfair to say, are you weary and burdened today? We've just come through the Christmas season. But I want to share with you something I've been holding since this summer. It came out uh, in the New York Times in June. It's an article by a guy named Tim Kreider called The Busy Trap, or it's an opinion really. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. So busy. Crazy busy. It's pretty obvious that these words are simply a boast disguised as a complaint. These words are a boast disguised as a complaint. The stock response is, of course, well, congratulations, that's a good problem to have. Or at least it's better than the opposite. He picks up later in the article and he says, this busyness, it's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety, because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Some may have an addiction to busyness. And you know what? In our house, I don't know about you, this holds true. In fact, when I got the email forward, I don't read the New York Times. I like the color pictures that are in the USA Today. I'm not smart enough for the New York Times. But when it got forwarded to me by smart people, a lot of them had written, guilty is charged. Yep, this is me. Again, that boast, hidden as a complaint. We like to be busy. There's significance in busyness, but... For Amy and I, we just realize our life looks odd. We're not quite sure it's just right. We want our kids to be in soccer and in tennis and in basketball and in dance and in gymnastics. We want them to play piano. We want them to participate in a choir and we want them to participate in a show choir. We'd like them to be in the musicals. Where does it end? And for our family, it tends to end anywhere but the dinner table. In fact, a guy named Randy Frazee wrote a book, Making Room for Life, that was almost entirely about getting back to table time, dinner table as families, making room for your life and for your neighbors and for conversation and for games. 
When I hear Jesus' words, I hear them for me. And I want them for you, for anyone to whom it applies. Come to me, all you who are weary. And isn't it amazing that Jesus is coming out of this frustration with those who aren't getting it. And it's almost as if he just gets down on his knees and he pleads with you. Come. Moreover, come to me, the living God, embodied on earth as a human. I've come to you that you might come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. An immediate transaction. You come to me and I'll help you experience that rest. John Ortberg, uh, at a time in his life where he felt particularly busy, got a piece of advice from his mentor who said that you should ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. This rings very true to me. He says that spiritual formation, Christ-likeness, cannot happen in a microwave world. It's a crockpot experience. It happens more slowly. We need to slow down if we want to experience Christ and be transformed into his likeness. In Jeremiah, there's a verse that talks about busy people that have left God to create significance through their busyness. It says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Jesus invites us, come if you're busy. Slow down. The second thing that Jesus says as we look at these words from Matthew eleven twenty nine, or 28 to 30, in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, it's an interesting model because taking a yoke upon you is intentionally giving up some of your freedom. You can't wander. You can't stray. You don't yoke a sheep, but you can yoke an oxen. You can yoke an oxen to learn to have purpose and responsiveness, to do work. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, volunteer for this. But not only is it my yoke, I'm in the other side of the yoke. It used to be a practice to take two oxen, a young and an older one, and yoke them together because the younger one could learn by watching the older one. Could learn how to do life, how to do oxenry. But another part happened. The older one would do a lot of the work. Christ is saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Walk side by side with me. Watch me. Learn from me. Do it my way. I will even carry the load. But there's an interesting thing about learning from Jesus. Oftentimes we think of learning from Jesus as something akin to wearing a WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? And looking at some of these times in Jesus' life and trying to replicate the final action. We try to replicate his saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Replicate his willingness to endure pain and suffering. Replicate his ability to be obedient to God during the hardest struggles. And that's good. But what we miss is the preparation that allows him to do these things. And what I've often seen is for people who are wounded by an enemy and say, I guess I have to forgive them, it doesn't come naturally. In fact, it grates. 
because their outward self is trying to enforce a behavior that their inward self wants nothing to do with. When Jesus says, learn from me, he's not saying, follow my outward activities. It's learn the way I walk with the Father. Learn the way I get away quietly. Learn the way I pray and listen. Learn the way that I learned obedience. Even Christ, it says in Hebrews, learned obedience. Learn the way I listen. Learn the way I walk rhythmically. In fact, the message version says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Christ-likeness, walking like Jesus, isn't a forced activity. In fact, it's unforced, and it's rhythmic, and it's graceful. Christ's invitation isn't to act like he does without any preparation. It's to become like he is by doing the things he does quietly. And if you think about that, at age 12, he's in the temple. He knows the Torah, but we don't see him again for 18 more years. And I suspect in those 18 years, he had lots of quiet with God, lots of getting God's heart on his inside, lots of knowing God's voice and how to respond to it, lots of learning what it is to love others. And he trained himself in this. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. The final thing is the promise of the resolution that Jesus invites. He says, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does it come instantly? No, the verb form is you will find. You get peace instantly. Christ gives you that rest. But then there's a process by which we continue to grow and we will find over time. There's a training that takes place. There's a preparation. We need to keep at it. We need to endure. And part of doing that is doing it with friends, doing it with prayer, doing it with quiet. Another part is simply recognizing that it needs to happen bit by bit. I've had the opportunity to run four marathons, and I will confess to you, I am not a runner. I don't have a runner's build. I don't have a runner's heart. I don't particularly like it. At first, it was just a challenge to see if I could do it. Then, as I grew older and grew bigger, it was a challenge to see if I could do it again. But each time I did it, it didn't happen because on October 15th, I woke up and said, all right, today's the day. I got to fight through it. It happened because somewhere almost a year before, I said, I'm going to do this. And I learned to run three miles. And then three miles turned into four, into five, into six. And over a long period of training, I was able to do something that I couldn't have done on my own before. Christ is saying to you, you will find, but enter into a period of training. Don't think of this as something that will happen quickly, but bit by bit. There's another part of this, though, that is not to quit. There are some people I've seen, and my father-in-law is one of them, that when a doctor gives them an indication of a change that needs to happen, a change for which they cannot turn back, they have incredible ability to go forward with it. And yet so often when we try to make a change, a resolution if you will, so often eventually we turn back to our old ways. There's something when you know it really matters when you know you've been told you have no choice, 
that keeps you going. Now my father-in-law has taken up karate, started at 62 or something like that. He's up to a green belt. He can do a running flip and land on his feet. I can't even do a somersault. It's amazing to watch what he's learned to do. But part of that is not quitting. And so I just say to you, bit by bit and never quit. Christ-likeness isn't an option. It's an expectation for all who have come to Bethlehem. And so I encourage you to make this resolution. To come to him. To take his yoke on you. To learn for him. And keep at it as you find that rest. But I want you to know... It is a bit of a resolutionary war. There are a few reasons it's a war. One reason is there's so many things in your heart that you imagine you could do better. There was a time a little while back I was doing premarital counseling for a dentist that I was going to marry. I didn't like going to see him. I think it's an innate fear of the dentist to begin with. But every time we were doing counseling, I thought, he's looking at my gums and he can tell I don't floss. And then I realized I feel guilty all the time. I take my car in, and they know I don't change my oil enough. Sometimes I'll peel the sticker off just so they don't see how overdue I am. I pretend I lost it as if those things could fall off. We go to see our financial person. I don't save enough or budget enough. I go to the Lifetime Fitness and I think they're scanning my card and they're thinking, it's been eight weeks. Oh my goodness. I don't work out enough. I could go on. I don't do anything enough. But what I've discovered is there's one place that I'm very disciplined about what I do. And it's my walk with Christ. And I believe that that area acts as a center to the hub of a wheel that will get the other parts in place. Spiritual training is of great value. It's also a resolutionary war. Just to be frank, it won't be easy. Because even if you pick the right resolution, and I'm proposing one here, if you're doing a spiritual resolution, Satan will try to stand against you. Ephesians 6 says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and forces that we know nothing about. It's a resolutionary war. Also in part because of our culture, it's not easy to do this. John Stott lists four isms that I'll mention real briefly that make it hard to pursue Christ-likeness. First off is pluralism. We live in a world where every religion is seen as a valid option. And therefore, anyone who says, I'm following Christ, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, looks like a real jerk. You look like you're narrow-minded, like you're not accepting, like you're not tolerant. It's not easy to be a Christ follower and to become Christ-like in this world of a pluralistic mind. This world is also a relativistic world, or relativism is how John Stott put it. There is no right or wrong anymore. It's just by common decree, whatever the popular vote is on what should be right or wrong. This holds for marriage and relationships. It holds for lying and truth. Christianity is full of ethical values and norms and ways that we should act and live. 
And a lot of these come into the face of a popular vote. And the populace has voted them wrong. So to become Christ-like in this world is a bit of a resolutionary war. Also, materialism. There's a great abundance here and a great desire for more. A great sense that contentment can come from more. It's bred in us. It's hard to renounce those things or to long for Christ even more. But Christ says, seek me first. Finally, narcissism. Our love of self makes it hard to pursue Christ-likeness in a religion that says, I have been crucified in Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. To put ourself behind, to put ourself second to Jesus isn't an easy thing. So, it's a resolutionary war. I want you to know we've equipped you for this here. If this is your resolution, there are small groups starting on the book of Luke when Mike starts preaching that coming up soon. You could form a small group. You could take Alpha. You could go in Alpha marriage. You could join the women's Bible studies, women's Bible connection, mops, men's fraternity. There's a host of things. If you're making this resolution, I encourage you Gather with others who can help hold you accountable, who can help pray for you, help be with you. But I encourage you to hear Christ's words today. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There could be nothing better this year. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray in thanks that you have revealed your word to us and that you don't hold it for know-it-alls, but you reveal it to simple, ordinary people. And God, I ask that you would allow these words to take root and flourish in our hearts, that we might long not just to journey to Bethlehem, but in fact to journey beyond it into a journey of Christ-likeness. Amen.